Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome to our new term and our new preaching series. So over the next few months, we're going to be looking primarily at the Beatitudes, those wonderful pithy statements that Jesus teaches the people. And... This is a series which our new vicar Simon has been very heavily involved in, in guiding us with and in helping us to set up so that he'll come into that part way through. Um, but it's, it's, it's been great working with him in beginning to get the, the feel of, 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 of direction. In preparing notes for this, which I think most of the small group leaders will probably now have, Simon asked the question, how can these amazing Beatitudes become part of who we are and who I am? How can these amazing Beatitudes become a part of who we are and who I am? See, the Beatitudes don't really make sense, do they, to those who aren't followers of Jesus, particularly in everything that our culture holds dear. I think it's significant that when John Stott's commentary on the Beatitudes was first issued, it was just called Christian counterculture. Because in our culture, who really wants to be poor in spirit? We want me to be number one in our culture. Who really wants to be, who wants to mourn, who wants to be meek, who wants to hunger and thirst, who wants to be merciful, who wants to be pure in heart, who really wants to be a peacemaker? Our culture goes against nearly all of those. There may be some exceptions. Who wants to be persecuted? And even as disciples, we may have doubts about following such a way. We look for something simpler that we can do, something less demanding, something more comfortable than what is contained in the Beatitudes. And I think perhaps one of the reasons for our feeling uncomfortable is that we've not got our underlying priorities right. 
And that's why the passage from Matthew 4 this morning is so helpful in beginning to direct us on that. Because as Jesus is tempted, yes, they were special temptations to him, but they actually show some of the core temptations that each of us will face. And those temptations of Jesus and the ones that are underlying what we face are far more about temptations about who we are and who we are to be rather than the things we are to do or not do. And that's true of the Beatitudes as well. They're attitudes. They're part of who we become in Christ. But there's also help in our passage this morning as well because as we see how Jesus tackles the temptations. So it gives us a clue as to how we should also do that. One final comment really by way of introduction. Matthew structures the opening of his gospel based very much on the Exodus experience. So in the Exodus, the the ancient people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were brought through the Red Sea. They were brought into the wilderness where they were tested. And Matthew's Gospel begins with Jesus fleeing as a refugee into Egypt. Just before our reading this morning, Jesus is baptized, seen as coming, if you like, through the Red Sea. And now he's led out into the wilderness, just as those ancient people were, and he is tested. And then a bit later on in, in Deuteronomy, the people are given instruction as to the sort of people they are expected to become. Now, obviously, the parallel, parallel breaks down. When Jesus is tempted, he doesn't fail. When those ancient people in the wilderness are tempted, they go all over the place and need to be brought back. And then in place of that wonderful teaching that we have through the whole of Deuteronomy, what it means to live a life that's honoring God in all sorts of ways, our ethics, our politics, and so on. Jesus then begins to expand first with the Beatitudes of the people we are to be, And then further on in the Sermon on the Mount, expanding that and showing us how we are to live our lives in Christ. Well, enough by way of introduction. Let's pray and then we'll come and look specifically at these verses that Veronica read to us just now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Thank you that you means, it means you understand what it's like for us to be tempted and you can understand the struggles that we face. As we look at this passage this morning, we pray that you would challenge us, but also that you would encourage us and help us to live lives which are honoring to you. For your sake we ask it. Amen. I suspect that we've all been there. We've gone away to a Christian conference, maybe a church weekend away, or something like that. And it's been great. The teaching, we've really lapped up. We've enjoyed singing the songs of worship together. We've enjoyed the fellowship. It's as if heaven has come to earth. And then Monday morning comes. And we go back into our normal routine. Maybe we go back into the workplace, wherever that might be for us. And one of the first people we meet as we walk through the door is the person who always rubs us up the wrong way. And we blow it again as they say something and we suddenly snap back. It seems to be always when we go through those periods of Christian highs 
that when we return out of them, that the tempter comes to us. And we need to be aware of that. But it's also at times of our weakness when those temptations come. And that was true for Jesus here this morning as well. Jesus had just been baptized. There had been that great high point of heaven literally coming to earth as the dove comes down from heaven and says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. But now he's been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And Matthew slightly, perhaps unnecessarily, just inserts and he was hungry. But he's at a low point. And the tempter comes to him. Is it just me who knows those situations? Or I've seen nods as I was explaining some of the earlier bits there as well. If we were to go back and read Exodus, we would find that the people there failed in the wilderness. They were hungry, and they demanded that God do something about it. In fact, they tell Moses to take them back to Egypt because they had lots of food there. They had big banquets, didn't they, in Egypt when they were slaves. God is merciful to them. And they're given the manna in the wilderness. A little later, the people come to an oasis called Rephidim. There's only one problem. The oasis has no water. And they get really angry and demand. God gives them water. The text actually says they put God to the test. And again, in his mercy, God eventually gives them water from the rock. But that protest against God is something which hangs on down through the years. But that was the time they put God to the test. It's there in Psalm 95, for example. And later still, as Moses has gone up on Sinai to receive the law from God, they think he's gone AWOL, they think God's given up on them. So Aaron says, I know what we will do. We will worship something else. And they build the, the golden calf. And Aaron says to them, come on, worship this. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Forget that other God. So can you see the parallels that there are here? The temptation for food, the temptation to test God, the temptation to worship somebody other than God, that Jesus himself fails. It's a reliving, if you like, of the Exodus narrative. And those who heard the gospel first would just simply have latched onto that. So the first of those temptations is to use our relationship with God to restrict God's purposes to me and my needs. You're hungry, says the tempter. Go on, you can make these stones turn to bread. Look after number one, Jesus. Don't worry about anything that God's called you to. That's what's being said. But Jesus has been called, as he calls us, to a life of self-sacrifice, where it isn't all about me, it's all about God. It's a life which he lived out as a suffering servant, one in which he would be persecuted, one in which he would hunger and thirst. And it's a way of life we are called to, too, as we take up our cross daily. Jesus' response is actually to quote from Deuteronomy, in its original context, the words are linked to the giving of the manna in the wilderness. 
the manna as a sign of God's provision. And in Deuteronomy read, it's there to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, but by the words that come from the mouth of God. It's God who leads us, not our own personal needs. Not by bread alone. That's important because God is interested in our material needs. But they're secondary to our relationship and the way in which God will call us and use us. God has so much more he wants to do with us than just our material needs. So much more that he wants to do for the whole world than just the material needs. He wants to use us to do them. We need to look beyond ourselves to the needs of others. Second temptation is there to put God on trial, if you like, to test him. A tempter, having been sort of countered by this, this, these scripture verses, decides he's going to enter into a scripture versus scripture battle. I'm going to quote this, you can quote this, see where it goes to. And he manages just to pull out a little bit of Psalm 91 about the angels taking care of you, but ignores the context when he does it. The psalmist is clear in the verses before the angels taking care. He says, put your trust in God. Let God be your refuge and then these things will follow. The tempter says, no, just, just put God to the test. Just say, yeah, God, I want you to jump through my hoops before I'll accept you. I want you, God, to be my servant, not the other way around. And Jesus has none of it. Again, he goes to Deuteronomy. And the verse is linked in Deuteronomy with that oasis without water at Rephidim. Trust God. Trust him alone. It won't always be easy, but we're called to follow him wherever he leads. And that third temptation, to give up on worshipping God. Maybe things have got tough. We say, I really don't want to do this anymore. I want something that's more comfortable than the sort of discipleship that God is calling me to. I know what I'll do. I'll go after this thing or that thing because that will give me more in my life than what God will give me. And that's the temptation that's put in front of Jesus. It's interesting, Matthew uses the same words here for worship as he does when the Magi come in chapter 2 to kneel down and bow down and worship before the infant Jesus. And Satan says, now you do the same to me and you'll have all of this stuff here. Shortcut it, Jesus. You don't need the cross. You don't need to go that way at all. Just bow down and worship me and all of this wonderful stuff will come to you. Rubbish. Whenever we bow down to that which is not God, to nation or race or family or social standing, hoping that this will fill our hearts, we succumb to this temptation. And I'm sure we could all add other things that we're tempted to succumb to. It's Jesus that we face. And Jesus again reverts to Deuteronomy. It's a call to worship God alone. Nothing is to get in the way of that. The result may be suffering, it may be persecution, it may mean mourning. But it's only in this way that we will find the blessedness that Jesus later talks about in the Beatitudes. Jesus 
is placed in the crucible of temptation and he emerges from the other side of it without having failed. That obedience ultimately leads to the cross and resurrection. So those words you read in the summer from Philippians 2. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exhorted him to the highest place. That was the way. And that's the way that we're called to too. Yes, we will be tempted to shape shortcuts on that. But that isn't the way we're to walk. We're to walk in the way of humility, the way of service, the way of suffering as we follow the Lord Jesus. We walk in that way knowing that our allegiance is to the faithful God. I'm really grateful to Rod for those songs that we've just sung about God's faithfulness because it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But God is going to be with us. The God who made us, the God who will care for us, the God who has saved us, the God who ultimately will bring us safe to shore. And in walking that way, we will know the blessedness that the Beatitudes talk of. Jesus overcomes each of those temptations in a particular way by quoting from Deuteronomy. And I think in doing so, he gives us a clue as to how we battle temptation. We do that by letting our lives be shaped by Scripture. Our lives be shaped by Scripture in our relationship with God so that by his Spirit, he will come and walk with us and show us the way in which we are to go. Jesus clings to God's Word. So how well do you know the Scriptures? How much are they the things which frame you? I don't mean the, the sort of test question of, please, can you quote for me Isaiah 42.1? Now, I expect some of you probably could do that straight off your heads this morning. I'm not talking about that, although that may be helpful. What I'm talking about is, do the Scriptures actually frame your life? Are they the things which shape you, that as you read about God's love and his love for others, does that convert your heart to having a love for others? As the scriptures talk about an utter and total allegiance to a holy and righteous God, does that affect our own allegiances? Or do we place our trust and our allegiance in something other than God? The list goes on. Eugene Peterson writes, writes this, and I found this very helpful. He says, we don't want to live in a small world that has Bible verses posted on it for validation. We want to live out of the whole of Scripture so that living out of it, even if we can't find a proof text for a specific situation, we know we are still walking in God's way. That's a slight paraphrase of what he wrote um, towards the end there, but it, it, it's, um, it's what he's actually saying. And then he, talk, he says this, and we find a home and a country within the scriptures and we are shaped by them. We find a home and a country within the scriptures and we are shaped by them. Are we living in that new country where we are shaped by scripture? So a reality check. How much time each day are you spending in reading the scriptures? How much time each day do you spend on social media 
watching television, reading novels. All of that's good stuff, but where's our allegiance? How much time do we spend just reading scripture? To let it soak in. Maybe not even remembering the individual verses we've read, but letting it shape us and frame us as to how we respond. If you need help in that, do come and talk to me later. We are called as Christians to a radical obedience to God, total allegiance to him. We're called by Jesus to take up our cross daily and walk wherever that might mean. We don't narrow things down for personal advantage. We don't want to make God our servant. We don't want to go after other gods. No, our focus is on God himself and on the Lord Jesus. And when we do that, a natural outworking of our lives will what we find in the blessedness of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. As we work our way towards those, let's have our eyes fixed firmly on God to walk in his ways and our allegiance set on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example on the Mount of Temptation. Thank you that you stayed true to who you were as God's Son. Lord, help us on our own individual Mounts of Temptation for the corporate Mount of Temptation we have as a church. Help us to stay faithful to who we are as your sons and daughters and help us to live for you and to worship you alone. Amen.